following teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Father, we do ask, God, that you would open our eyes to behold the wonderful things in your law. Lord, we thank you that we could celebrate communion this morning and remember our Lord and Savior. And and I would pray, Lord, that our time together, you would lift him up, that we would have a clearer picture of him. For I know, Lord, as we look to our Savior, that the trials and struggles and suffering in this life, and Lord, even the, uh, Lord, all the cares become diminished as we look to your son. We pray in his name. Amen. All right. Well, again, we're going to be in Joel three and Lord willing, this will be our last um, message from the book of Joel. And, you know, in studying through Joel, I came, an expression came to my mind. Deja vu. You know, that is the literal uh, French literally for already seen. It's that weird experience, right? You get when you're in a situation and you feel like I, I've this has happened to me before. Uh, any experience that? I mean, it's weird. It's weird. Well, in a good sense, uh, Joel is really a, like a deja vu in a lot of ways because it's so similar to the first major, the first minor prophet, excuse me, that we looked at, Obadiah. And in fact, there's many similarities between the two uh, books, the two prophecies. One is uh, Obadiah and Joel, as they open their prophecies, they only give their name. And like Obadiah, Joel lived in Judah or around Judah nearby. Both Joel and Obadiah likely prophesied within 10 to 20 years of one another. They perhaps even knew each other. And they prophesied around the mid-9th century, most likely. Both prophesied following a tragic event that took place in Judah. Obadiah, if you remember, uh, prophesied right after they had suffered at the hands of the Edomites who had plundered uh, the city. And also, too, uh, uh, Joel, he, he came along and followed a, a tragic event that occurred in Judah as well, and that was the, the plague of locusts, right? Also, too, Joel seems to quote directly from Obadiah in a couple of places, and both in their message focused on the day of the Lord. In fact, they describe it, both of them, as a time of God's judgment upon the nations and His restoration of Israel. And Joel actually takes the last 31 verses of his prophecy and seems to be expanding what Obadiah introduced in seed form regarding the day of the Lord. Up until Joel 2:28, which we looked at last week, Joel's focus has been on what had occurred in the present day in Judah and what had happened and why it happened and what they needed to be warned about and what God wanted them to do in response to that. And then in verse 28, Joel shifts to a future time. A future time where he said there that he would pour out his spirit among all of his people and that they would be saved. But then we get here this expression, the day of the Lord. Joel's already mentioned it on three occasions. He sprinkled it about throughout the first part of his book. He's going to talk about it two more times in the last section that we're going to read together. And that will be the focus as he gives full attention to what the day of the Lord will mean in the future, not only for his people Israel, but also for the nation. So please stand as I read, beginning from Joel 2.28. We're just going to read the rest of his prophecy together. God speaking through Joel says this in chapter 2, verse 28, And it will come about that after this I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions, and even on the male and female servants I will pour out my spirit in those days. And I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. For behold, in those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And there I will enter into judgment with them there. Then I will enter into judgment with them there. And on behalf of my people and my inheritance, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, and they've divided up my land. They have also cast lots for my people 
traded a boy for a harlot and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. Moreover, what are you to me, O Tyre, Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? Are you rendering me a recompense? But if you do recompense me swiftly and speedily, I will return your recompense on your head. Since you've taken my silver and my gold, brought my precious treasures to your temples, and sold the sons of Judah and the Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their country, behold, I'm going to arouse them from the place where you have sold them and return your recompense on your head. And I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hands of the sons of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a distant nation, for the Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare war. Rouse the mighty men. Let all the soldiers draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a mighty man. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones. Let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness, and the Lord roars from Zion. He utters His voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and earth tremble. But the Lord is a refuge for His people and a stronghold of the sons of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain, so Jerusalem will be holy, and strangers will pass through it no more. And it will come about in that day that the mountains will drip with sweet wine and the hills will flow with milk and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water and the spring will go out from the house of the Lord to, the, to water the valley of Shittim. Egypt will become a waste and Edom will become a desolate wilderness because of the violence done to the sons of Judah in whose land they have shed innocent blood. But Judah will be inhabited forever and Jerusalem for all generations and I will avenge their blood which I have not avenged for the Lord dwells in Zion. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I know it was a little bit of a longer section there, but I wanted to look at it as a whole to get the feel for what Joel was saying and to see how everything is interconnected here. He's dealing with one specific theme throughout these last 31 verses of his prophecy. And that theme regard is regarding the day of the Lord, or in Hebrew, Yom Yahweh. He says it twice, once in 2.31 and again in 3.14. This phrase, day of the Lord or Yahweh's day, is found 19 times in the Old Testament. In fact, all of them were within, are within the prophets. And in fact, six of the 12 prophets, six of the 12 mention this phrase. They are by far the ones that talk about it the most. 14 of the 19 times are mentioned in the prophets, in the minor prophets Five times are mentioned in two of the major prophets, Isaiah and Zechariah. And because the twelve are a, a smaller number of verses, they're a smaller section. They're actually, we could say, are, have the most intense focus on the day of the Lord and provide the most instruction and foundation for what does it mean, what is it, and when will it be, what will take place. And of the minor prophets, Obadiah, he was the first one to use the phrase in Scripture, and Malachi the last. And Joel uses it by far more than any other. Five of its occurrences occur in Joel, and he has spread them out through his entire prophecy. And because of that, scholars have said that Joel is the one who, uh, more than any other in Scripture, gives the most sustained treatment of the day of the Lord. In fact, what we see of the day of the Lord in the prophets after Joel and Zephaniah and Isaiah and Ezekiel and uh, the others really shows that they draw heavily upon what Joel had to say about it here in Joel 3. This, this phrase, day of the Lord, you know, we had a Gordian knot last week in Joel 2.28. This is another one. And rather than go through every passage in Scripture with you and try to tell what the whole Bible has to say about the day of the Lord, I thought we would just start in Joel for it serves as the foundation. And learn, what does Joel have to say about it? And then as we go through the rest of the prophets, we'll, we'll capture more information as we go along. But, but Joel really talks about and gives much detail regarding the day of the Lord. And before we look at it in detail, I want us to think about a couple of general points by way of introduction to this phrase. The first is, notice that it says Yahweh's day. 
day or, or yom here. And he, he, the fact that he's using that word doesn't mean that it's restricted to one 24-hour period of time. In fact, here, without the definite article, the, before the word yom, this is, to be, this is an indefinite period of time. It's kind of like how we use the phrase day sometimes when we say back in the day or there will come a day when... Or many other times. Well, we're not referring to 24-hour segment of time, but referring to a general period of time. Second thing to note is that whose day is it? Yahweh's day. It's the day of the Lord. It's His day. Yahweh is the personal name of God that He told Moses from the burning bush. It's based upon the root word for be in Hebrew, hayah. And it gives the idea and the emphasis both of His eternality and of His faithfulness. That when we hear the name Yahweh, we should be thinking of the eternally existent one who is faithful and keeps all of his promises. And I, I really wish that our English translations would, instead of putting capital L-O-R-D for, for Yahweh, they put Yahweh. Instead of his title, which is true of him, and we are to call him Lord. He is master. He is ruler. He is sovereign Lord of the universe. But in Scripture, capital L-O-R-D is to be his name. It's Yahweh. Um, so... That's for another time. Maybe we can write up a petition or something. I don't know. But, you know, it just depersonalizes him a little bit, doesn't it? When he's intending to express his personal name, especially, it is Yahweh's day. And though Joel and Obadiah, they they refer to it as it's an eschatological day. It's an end times day of the Lord. A third thing we need to recognize is that it does not always refer to end times events. In fact, in Isaiah 13, where it speaks of Babylon being conquered by the Medes in 539 B.C., it calls that time a day of the Lord. Or Judah's exile into Babylon in 586 B.C. was also called the day of the Lord in Ezekiel 13. Amos 5, some say, is referring to the Assyrian invasion of Israel in 722 B.C., and it calls that time period the day of the Lord. So it's not always a reference to a a future event in the end times. It can also be used for situations that were occurring near to the time of the prophets. Also, too, the day of the Lord is not an Old Testament concept alone. In fact, there are four verses in uh, the New Testament that refer to it explicitly. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.2, The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. 2 Thessalonians 2.2 says the day of the Lord had not yet come. Peter said in 2 Peter 3.10, The day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. Before understanding, though, what the meaning of the day of the Lord in the New Testament and many other allusions that are in reference to it, we need to understand what it meant in the Old Testament in its context. They are linked. They are connected. And here in Joel 3, he will provide a basis and a foundation from which to, to get an understanding of what the day of the Lord means in Scripture. And so we see here in Joel 3, there are two aspects that he talks about regarding the day of the Lord. One is that it is a day of God's judgment upon his enemies. And we see that in verses 1 to 16. And another is that it is a day of God's blessing upon his people. We see that in verses 16 through 21. Let's go back to Joel 3, verse 1. He begins by saying, for behold, in those days, and here he's connecting back to the same phrase in those days that he mentioned in 229. That means he's linking what he's about to say in chapter three from what he has just talked about at the end of chapter two. And he begins with that exclamation, behold, it's this word that's intended to arrest our attention. It's uh, intended to make us recognize, hey, stop, hold on a second. I want you to, re- to learn and, and to see that there's a new declaration I'm going to present to you. And then chapter 3, God then turns his focus from talking about his people Israel at the end of chapter 2 to what he's going to do regarding the nations in particular in chapter 3. And it's the kind of focus, it's the kind of attention they're not going to like. Because notice in chapter 3, these words that are repeated, judge, judgment, decision, verdict. In fact, the first eight verses of chapter 3 are constructed in the form of a lawsuit. God is bringing a lawsuit against the nations. Verses 1 and 2, the accused are summoned. And verses 2 and 3, the charges are read. And then the accused are interrogated in verse 4. By the way, I'm not saying alleged. Did you catch that? The charges are further detailed and the verdict is announced in verses 4 to 8. And then 9 through 16, those verses describe how the judgment will be carried out. 
Verse 2, the court is called to order. And it's called to order in a place called what? If you look there, the valley of what? Jehoshaphat, right? Now that, that's a, the name that was, uh, uh, we learned of a while back regarding King Jehoshaphat. He reigned about 50 years earlier in Judah. And some think it, it may be a reference to the area where when Jehoshaphat led the attack of the singing soldiers where the land had been invaded and, and he brought a choir in the front lines and God had given them victory. But that valley had been given another name. And over time, uh, since the time of Eusebius, actually, in the early 4th century A.D., it's been traditionally thought that the Valley of Jehoshaphat is really part of the Kidron Valley that's on the east side of Jerusalem. And that word Jehoshaphat, uh, we shouldn't be thinking about the king's name. It's actually a word that means Yahweh judges. I think God is doing a word play here in verse 2 where he's saying, Come to the valley of Yahweh judges, for I will sit there in judgment. I will judge you. And who are those being summoned into the Lord's courtroom? Who is it that God has called to the stand? All the nations, right? All the nations. Joel identifies a few of them in verse 4 where he, he says, Tyre and Sidon, the regions of Philistia. And then he notes Edom and Egypt in verse 19. These are the historical enemies of Israel up to that time. In fact, notice he doesn't mention Assyria or Babylon or Persia. I think this gives evidence to the fact that Joel was written before those nations came to power. And these nations that he does mention aren't the only ones that will be called in that day. He says all the nations. These ones that are particularly mentioned are just simply representative of all the nations. And then if you look at verse 2 in the middle there, he lays out the details of the indictment. He details three crimes that the nations had committed against his people. Look there in the middle of verse 2. What's the first crime that he mentions? They'd done what? This happened first hour. Nobody said anything. Come on, it's right there. They did what? They scattered, right? They scattered his people. They scattered them among the nations. Over the years, many nations have invaded Israel and conquered them and taken captives out of the land. Not only did Tyre and Philistia do it in their day, but just a hundred years later, the Assyrians came into the ten northern tribes of Israel And they wiped out those northern tribes and they spread many of the survivors throughout the far regions of the Assyrian Empire. And it was only about a hundred years after that that Babylon came to Judah and took a number of them into exile in Babylon. Then came the Seleucid kings and then came Rome. 70 AD, Josephus notes that the Romans sold over a hundred thousand Jews into slavery or forced them to work in the Egyptian mines, or many of them were taken and used for the construction of the Roman Colosseum. The Jews remained scattered then for nearly 1,900 years until a certain event happened in the middle of the last century. What was that? The United Nations brought Israel together again as a nation in the land of Palestine. God's second charge in verse 2 was that the nations had divided up His land. Again, one example is when Assyria came into the land, they conquered the ten northern tribes of Israel, and as I mentioned, they scattered the Jews all over the Assyrian Empire. They not only did that, they brought others that they had conquered from other parts of the empire into Judah, or into, excuse me, into Israel. And they did that in order to minimize the possibility of revolt. But see, God had a problem with that. He said, hey, wait a minute, this is my land. It's not for you to divide up and to decide what to do with. This is a land that I promised to Abraham and his descendants. And that's why he calls it my land. Note too, he says in verse 5, they'd taken his silver and his gold and his precious treasures. Not only had the wealth of Israel been plundered on these many occasions, but also the treasures that were in the temple of Israel, the instruments that were to be used in the worship of Yahweh. In fact, if you remember... uh, Remember the handwriting on the wall? That was King Belshazzar. He was the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, you remember what they were doing when that hand appeared and started writing and inscribing? Like, whoa, what's going on? Right? They were having a party. And they were drinking. And they were praising. They were drinking out of these golden vessels. And they were praising the gods of gold and silver. And where did those vessels come from? God's temple. God's temple. And so that night, he said, Belshazzar, we're done. There's a third charge mentioned in verse 3 of Joel 3, and that is that they were accused of casting lots for God's people. 
Again, that term of casting lots was the idea that when a, an enemy nation had, had conquered someone, they would cast lots, they would divide up the spoil. Well, the spoil here, God mentions, is that you cast lots for my people. That the spoil here was the future mothers and fathers of Judah. And they were being used as currency. Currency to, to pay for the temporary pleasures of prostitutes and alcohol. You see, these oppressors had cheapened human life, exchanging children for a short-lived vice. In verse 6, God alludes to it again when He says, You sold my people, Judah, to the Greeks. Some think that reference to the Greeks there means that He's speaking in the, in the day when Alexander the Great was in power, but He's simply talking about the, the, region of, uh, the western region of Asia Minor. And His point He's making is, You've taken them far away from my land. So after these charges were read, if you look to verse 4, God then interrogates those that he has accused. And he says there, what are you to me, guys? Do you, do you have a justified reason to get even with me? God then flips it on them and says, you know what? Rather, I have a reason to repay you. And what you have done to my people will happen to you. This is what we call lex talionis. It's Latin for law or principle of retaliation. And, and some may think when you think of this dive, see the phrase like this or ones like it, you know, isn't God being a little petty here? Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do what you did to my people. I'm going to do it to you. I'm going to take revenge and avenge them. God tells us to turn the other cheek. And yet he himself doesn't seem to be applying that principle to himself, Right? You know, 12, Romans twelve nineteen says for us to never take revenge, right? He says, never take revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But how is that a good thing? God taking vengeance or avenging or this idea of him taking revenge doesn't seem right. I think for some of us, it, it might hit us a little strange or negatively. That statement, vengeance is mine, I will repay, came from a song that Moses delivered to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 32. And the reason of God's vengeance being a good thing, Moses mentions right at the beginning of his song, where he says in Deuteronomy 32, 4, I proclaim the name of the Lord, actually he sings this, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, Righteous and upright is he. You see, just as God is love, just as he's holy, just as he's compassionate, just as he is good, so also God is just. He alone, he alone knows how to balance the scales. He alone knows how to take vengeance rightly. But again, this whole idea of vengeance, even that word, doesn't sit well with our culture, does it? In fact, one thing is, Many don't trust authority because we've seen so many mistakes, so many injustices, so many abuses by those in authority that, that we become jaded. But we have to remember something. God isn't like any human authority. Honestly, we don't know what true justice looks like or how to carry it out. But God is perfect. He is holy. He is wise. He knows all. And most importantly, He sees all. We would rush to respond when we should have waited. Or wait to respond when we should have acted. But only God knows how and when and what to do. And think about this for a minute. What if there was no justice in the world? What if there were no laws? Or what if the laws that are there were never enforced? What if God didn't hold the world to his standard, to standards that through his character? I mean, think about that. What if there was no justice? We see here in Joel that God indeed is just. That He will not let the wrongs that have been done in humanity go without a response. In wisdom, He will determinely and so, He will sovereignly determine, excuse me, what to do, when to do it, and how. But know this: He will do it. God will act. God will punish sin and wrongdoing and know that the atrocities that have been committed throughout history have not fallen on deaf ears. God has not been asleep. God has seen. Know that God will return evil upon the heads of those who have done them. Because again, God is just. He is righteous. 
That's what we see here in Yahweh's day in Joel 3. In fact, look at verse 9. Here God is calling the nations out. He said, hey, meet me out back. Gather your mighty men and your soldiers. Gather those who are now farming. Tell them they need to come too. And in fact, he says at the end of verse uh, 10, let the weak say I am a mighty man. What he's saying there is to even have those who are literally here disabled or too feeble even to walk, have them come too. Everyone needs to come to this battle. No one is to stay home. Even the weak are summoned to fight. In verse 11, he says, Any remaining nations that aren't yet in the battle, you come too. Let's all gather together in the valley of Jehoshaphat. And if you look at it, especially in the Hebrew, it, 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 it's clear that in verses 9 to 12, there are these, these, these commands coming in a rapid-fire fashion. And, and the, the intensity of it, the, the urgency of it. Come, come now. Rise to action. Bring everybody skilled, strong or weak, skilled in war or not, and meet me outside. Meet me in the valley of Yahweh, Judges, the valley of Jehoshaphat. And it appears here that God is calling the nations for battle, right? But verse 12 gives us the irony here. They're not being called for battle, but for judgment. God says in 3.12, Come to the valley of Jehoshaphat, where I will be sitting with gavel in hand. You see, this is God's Nuremberg trial. All the atrocities in human history against God's people will be accounted for on that day. God has moved now from prosecutor to judge. And He awaits the nation's arrival, not to hear further evidence in their defense, but to render a verdict. In fact, here in verse 14, what is it that the valley is also described as here? Not just the valley of Jehoshaphat, but the valley of decision, or uh, probably a better term would be verdict. Now, I've, I've heard many quote this passage when they share the gospel and, and they're uh, telling someone, you're now in the valley of decision. You need to decide or choose between whether or not you, were fo- whether you will follow God or not. In fact, I even heard of a church this week named Valley of Decision Baptist Church. But that's not what it means here. See, listen, the, the nations are not being called together and gathered together to make a decision, but to hear one. Their opportunity is done. God has come to a verdict at this point. And in verse 14, we've reached a key moment, a a climax in the day of the Lord. It's seen by the repeated exclamations there in verse 14. Multitudes, multitudes, crowds, crowds. There's so many gathered in the valley of decision. The day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision, the valley of verdict. There's heightened emotion here. And we see that in verse 13 as well, the imagery that Joel uses. Let me read it again. He says, Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. So talking about a ripe harvest and a full winepress, is, is he here expressing images of, of blessing? No, of judgment. In fact, it's the same picture that John the Apostle saw in his vision in Revelation 14. Let me read that. To you and listen for the similarities. John says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Then he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped, And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. Then a, another angel came out of the altar, and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth, gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth, and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. The winepress was trodden outside the city, And blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. It's the same picture that Joel presents. It's a sobering one. It is a sobering picture. Because again, the the grain here that's being harvested, the grapes from the vine that are being cut off and put into the winepress and being tread, these are people being judged. 
In verse 15 in Joel, he further stresses the ominous nature of the event when he says that the sun and moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. The same thing that Joel has said several other times in his book regarding the day of the Lord. He says, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And what happens to the heavens and the earth when God declares his verdict? Is it that quiet voice that Elijah heard? Not at all. It says the heavens will tremble. The earth will tremble. Thunder and earthquakes will take place. The luminaries will be darkened. The sun, which is... How long do scientists say? It's supposed to last another 7 million years, right? Not that day. He'll darken the sun and the moon. And as he speaks his verdict, there will be no ordinary thunderstorm, no mild tremor, but the warriors will cry like babies out of fear. Again, God will punish sin. That's what these images are intended to portray. And as sobering as these images are, and as serious a picture as is given in these verses, you know, they they really pale in comparison to the final judgment before Jesus Christ at the great great white throne in Revelation 20. Because again, it's, it's one thing to be confronted with physical terrors and death. It's quite another thing to be confronted by a holy God who can bring spiritual death and hell. And listen, that is what awaits anybody, anyone who will not cry out to Jesus Christ for forgiveness and mercy. Christ will sit as judge come judgment day, but right now his hand does not hold a gavel within it, but it is extended, offering peace and forgiveness to any who will confess their sins, to any who will commit to turn from them and follow Jesus Christ for life. So I would appeal to you if you're not right with the Lord to come now to him as your savior before he comes to you as your judge. Commit your life to him and give up your sin. What what can be worth an eternity in hell? Joel 3:16 we see this transition then from from God's judgment and his proclamation and his verdict that the nations will be judged. He transitions from that to declare his blessing upon his people. That takes us to the second aspect of Yahweh's day, God's blessing. In verse 17, we're given a picture here. And that picture is of the Messiah's reign. Now, Joel was an earlier prophet, and he doesn't mention the Messiah explicitly, but based on his description in verse 17 and what we see in Isaiah and Zechariah, he is describing here how the Messiah will dwell in Jerusalem one day and will reign on David's throne from there. And who is the Messiah? Jesus, right? In fact, Acts 2, Peter's first sermon that he preached, that was the main theme of his message, was that Jesus, the Messiah, had come, and God proved that this was the one by raising him from the dead. And then 40 days later, after the resurrection, Jesus ascended into heaven, right? But it wasn't a one-way flight. He's going to return. And in fact, do you know the first place that he will visit upon his return? Jerusalem. Zechariah 14 says that his feet will rest on the Mount of Olives. He'll come back and he'll begin there. And Revelation 19 tells us that when he returns, it will, he, he will be coming in battle. He will destroy and conquer the enemy nations that have surrounded Israel in that day. And then he will take his seat on the throne of David in Jerusalem and reign from Zion there. And that's why verse 17 says, Jerusalem will be holy. Why will it be holy? Because the Holy King is there. The Holy King is reigning. And you know, when it comes down to it, that's really the goal. That is the aim of the day of the Lord. Jesus Christ reigning and being worshipped and honored and exalted on earth as He deserves to be. In fact, the last phrase in Joel's prophecy in verse 21 is Yahweh dwells in Zion. The last phrase in Obadiah's prophecy is the kingdom will be Yahweh's. Near the end of Zechariah's prophecy, he says in 14.9, Yahweh will be king over all the earth. Daniel 2. Remember Nebuchadnezzar's vision that he had, the dream he had, I mean, of the, of the statue? And the point of the whole thing was, in the end of the day, this giant rock will smash that statue which represented the kingdoms of the earth. And Daniel 2.44 says that in that day he will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. During the Great Revelation, at the sounding of the seventh trumpet. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, these words should stir you. Where it says in Revelation 11:15, there were loud voices in heaven saying this, 
The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Messiah, and He will reign forever and ever. That day is coming. Because Jesus is in Jerusalem, it says at the end of verse 17 that strangers will pass through it no more. And what He means there is foreign invaders. No longer will the boots of foreign soldiers march through Jerusalem to oppress her again. And not only that, will God's people be protected, but look at verse 18 in Joel 3. It talks about the land being abundant. Again, remember here, as we look at what he says in verse 18 about this future day, what was it that the people that he was speaking to saw when they looked around them? Saw nothing, right? Wastelands, barren land, dry, parched. Imagine how they would feel hearing this description that one day God will do this. He says that one day the mountains would drip with sweet, that is freshly pressed wine. But what did they see in Joel's day when they looked out to where the vineyards were? Sticks. The vineyards had dried up, Joel 1.10 says. The hills would flow with milk. Joel says in 3.18, which has this idea, the cattle will be so well fed and nourished that milk will just come out of their udders without even being pulled. It'll flow down the mountains, he's saying. Compare that to Joel 18. What was it that the cattle were doing in, Je- in Joel's day? They were wandering around aimlessly because there was no pasture for them to eat. God also says in Joel 3.18 that the brooks will flow with water. And again, Joel one twenty said in their day the brooks were dried up. At the end of verse 18, he says, So much water will flow, it will even flow into the valley of Shittim, which actually that word means uh, acacia trees. Acacia trees grow in, very, grow in very dry and arid climates. And he's saying there will be so much water, it will even flow into the dry and desolate places around Jerusalem. Verse 19 says that that would not be the case for Israel's oppressors. Theirs would be a wasteland. Again, in response to what they had done to his people, God says, I will avenge the blood that you have spilt. Now, these events here in Yahweh's day as described in Joel 3. They, they not only show God's justice, but there's also one other characteristic here, one other attribute that I think is, is, in, um, is in neon signs, really, when you think about what's going on here in Joel. And that is back in verse 2. Notice the reason that God gives for judging the nations. Why did he bring judgment? He says, I will enter judgment into judgment with them there on what? On behalf of my people and my inheritance, Israel. And notice the number of times he uses the possessive pronoun in verses 2 and 3. My people, my inheritance, my land, my people again. And in verse 16, his people. God takes actions against Israel personally, doesn't he? Notice in verse 4, he says, are you rending, rendering me a recompense? Again, what was happening to them? He was saying, are, are you taking revenge on me? What, you're taking my silver and my gold and my precious treasures. What you're doing to my people, you're doing that to me. Charles Feinberg, an Old Testament scholar, said, Little do the nations realize how they incur the wrath of God when they lay violent hands upon his heritage and the plant of his choosing. You know what? We don't mess with Israel because God is fiercely loyal. This isn't past tense here, by the way. He's speaking of the future. And this is literal Israel he's talking about here. This is not a symbol of the church. He's talking about his people. He's fiercely loyal. And the terminology or the language of avenging Israel, of bringing severe judgment upon her enemies, of being Israel's refuge forever, these speak of a devotion and a commitment and a faithfulness by God to his people. And here in Joel, remember, he's still declaring this loyalty even though they had been in great rebellion against him. Because remember, that's why the locust plague came. It was a consequence for their sin against God. And yet even in the midst of that, God declares His devotion to them. In fact, Paul told us in Romans 11:2 that even for what they did to Jesus, God had not completely abandoned His people, that He would restore them one day. And you know, I was, I was thinking about this concern He has for Israel. And I was struck by the reason for God's loyalty. Do you remember why? Let's go back a little bit. Genesis 12. There was this idol-worshiping man called Abram. 
And God called out to him one day in Genesis 12:1, And he said this, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. What did God say here about how he would respond to how others treated Israel? Abraham and his descendants through Jacob. He says, I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, that's a word for to treat with contempt or insignificance. The one who treats you with contempt, I will curse. You know what, brothers and sisters? That one sentence, that one statement made by God as a promise to this man, that forms the basis for all we have been seeing here in Joel 3, for all the dealings that God had with Israel, for his commitment to be faithful to them through all the situations that they had taken place. He pulled them out of Egypt and delivered them. He promised them to be given the land which he did give them. And he endured after year after year and century after century their rebellion against him. He sent prophet after prophet to call them to repentance. He continued to show his loyalty and his faithfulness and his love to them. And why did he do that? Because of the one statement he made to Abraham. That's a big deal. Think about this. God's fierce loyalty comes from a statement he made over 4,000 years ago. It's an incredible example of keeping his word. Because when God tells us, he says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Or when he says you will be held accountable for every word you speak. Do you realize God holds himself to the same standard? And those few words that he spoke to Abraham and his descendants through his grandson, Jacob. God's going to keep his word. He will stick to it. So when you read in Hebrews 13, 5, that I will never leave you nor forsake you. Or when you read in Philippians 4, 7, that he will give you peace beyond understanding when you pray in faith. Or in Romans 8, 39, that nothing will separate you from the love of Christ. Or in 1 John 5, 18, that the evil one cannot bring ultimate harm against you. Or that whoever believes in Jesus has eternal life. These promises and and all the other ones that God has spoken in his word, you can bank on them. They are a certainty. If you're a true believer in Jesus Christ, you know what? You are called the people of God. You are described in Ephesians 1.18 as his inheritance. Galatians 3.26, you are called his sons of God, his sons. And if God will go through all that he has for Israel to keep his word to them, how much more so for the church? The church which was purchased by Jesus's precious blood. Jesus won't treat his bride cheaply. He will not neglect her nor forsake her because he's faithful, because he keeps his word. Again, I'm staggered by that. The one phrase God held to regarding Israel. We can praise God that he's a faithful God. Now, a question always comes up when we talk about end time stuff. And what question is that? When? (laughs) When? When's it going to happen? Well, Joel gives a couple of clues to look for. Basically, it's in regards to uh, when, when we think about the day of the Lord, we need to keep our eye on Israel. Joel 3, 1 says, In those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah. And I think a, a better translation there that's more connected to what was written in the Hebrew text is when I bring back the captives of Judah. See, those who've been scattered, God says that he will return them to the land. And about 65 years ago, Israel was returned to the land after being scattered for 1,900 years. But not all of them are back yet. Joel also says in 2.28 and 29 that another sign will come in Yahweh's day, and that will be the pouring out of his spirit upon all of his people. That will lead them to repentance, as Zechariah 12.10 also describes, that the Jews will recognize that Jesus is the Messiah, and they will come to him in repentance. And as Paul says in Romans 11.26, all Israel will be saved in that day. And so again, keep your eyes on Israel. But be careful, 
Don't put too much stock in current events. Because again, front page headlines make poor expositors for Bible prophecy. We have to be careful. Charles Charles Spurgeon gave these wise, wise words when he said, There are two great certainties about things that shall come to pass. One is that God knows, and the other is that we do not know. (laughs) And the number of those who have tried are legion. Harold Camping was the latest one that predicted such a thing. But you know what? Jesus never gave the specific time. He did describe events that would surround it. But there's one aspect of his return that he did emphasize and focus on. And it's the one aspect that the prophets also focused on when they spoke of the day of the Lord. And that is what? What about it? It's near. It's coming. It's imminent. Joel said it several times in his message. The day of the Lord is near. Obadiah said in 115, the day of the Lord draws near. Zephaniah 1.14, near is the great day of the Lord, near and coming very quickly. Jesus and his apostles often said in speaking of his second coming, it will be like a thief in the night. Or in fact, do you, do you know what Jesus' last spoken words are recorded in the Bible? If you go to Revelation 22, the next to the last verse, Jesus says this, yes, I'm coming quickly. Coming is imminent. But some would say, well, Jesus said that like 2,000 years ago, didn't he? And, and Joel, he said the day of the Lord was near, and that was like 3,000 years ago or so. But God hasn't done anything for centuries. Israel is still not following him. Doesn't seem like it's very near to me. Well, first thing I would say to that is look around you. <laughs> the things that are happening around us, it sure seems like the day of the Lord can't be that far off. But you know, beyond that, even if his return doesn't appear to you and things may settle down on this planet and it may be another thousand or two or however many years, we don't know. But even if that's the case, don't let it lull you to sleep. In fact, let me get an illustration here. All right, let me say, I'm going to put my water bottle there. It's open. Yeah. Right? And it sits there precariously, right? Oh, whoa, whoa. <laughs> that didn't happen first hour. But it'll be a better illustration now. <laughs> I'm going to try this again. The rapture just happened. I just realized that's on video and I dove over the pulpit. Okay. Now. <laughs> You would be distracted, would you not, by this bottle sitting precariously on the pulpit, especially as I'm standing here behind it, right? Because I've been known at times to, uh, to bang the pulpit. In fact, uh, one time there was a cup full of juice that spilled all over as a result. But then when, as I'm near the pulpit, I might bump it or I might hit it. And so your attention, you're, most of you are watching that thing to see if it'll happen again, right? But what happens when I walk away from the pulpit? Less of a threat now, right? Most of you maybe are not necessarily staring at the bottle anymore. You're you're watching me. Things seem quiet. Things seem like, well, nothing's going to happen. He's not near the pulpit. And as I come back, you're getting more nervous again. In fact, I'm going to move that. (laughs) But it's the same thing about his coming. There are times when things seem quiet. We don't anticipate the judgment so much. It's as if God moved away from the pulpit. But that doesn't mean the bottle won't fall. That doesn't mean it's not still just as precarious and can happen any moment. In fact, in the Apostles' Day, remember they were saying, where's the promise of His coming? Nothing's changed in years. Everything is quiet. We see no signs of God's judgment. What are you guys talking about? The second coming is going to happen soon. But what did Peter say in 2 Peter 3, 9? He said this, This Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. You see, God's not only just, He's also patient. And He's waiting. 
And he hasn't come yet. The day of the Lord has not arrived yet because he's waiting for many to repent. In fact, he's probably waiting for some of you here in this room to repent, to turn from your sin and place your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. The only way of salvation, the only accepted payment is his death on the cross for your sin. But don't mistake God's delay for indifference. Yes, he may be away from the pulpit, but that doesn't mean that the bottle will not fall. And you don't want to be standing among those in the valley of decision on that day. You want to be standing in Jerusalem, having fellowship with the Lord Jesus and his people. You know, if you aren't sure where you're at with God, if maybe in some of the things that we've seen here in Joel has made you think about it, come after the service. There's some folks that stand right up here, some counselors. They would be happy to help you understand better the message of salvation, how you can be delivered from the valley of Jehoshaphat in that day, how you can be right with the Lord and not just delivered from judgment, but brought into fellowship with Him to experience His love for you. Well, that ends Joel, our time in Joel anyway. And I hope that as we've been going through it together, it's given you a little better glimpse not only of his book, but also of God. Because in these prophecies, as in the rest of Scripture, but particularly these prophecies, as we look to the things that he's telling his people, God reveals much about himself. And we've seen here in Joel his faithfulness and his justice and his patience and his compassion and his loyalty, his care as a father. We indeed serve a great God, do we not? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for what you have shown us in this wonderful book. Lord, I know there are places that are difficult to understand and comprehend. We thank you for your spirit who gives us understanding. And Lord, I pray as we reflect on Joel and, and on the coming prophets, Lord, that you would give us insight not only so we would know things, Lord, but that we would know what to do with them, how to apply them in our own lives. Lord, we thank you for the promise one day you will, Lord, do what is right and just in regards to your people. Lord, we are encouraged by that and seeing your faithfulness that you've not forgotten. Lord, may we depend on that and, and trust in that and who you are, knowing that the promises that you have given to us, Lord, you will not neglect or ignore. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, whose death we celebrated today, and his resurrection we look forward to. There is his coming back, excuse me, we look forward to his return. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.